Well, good morning. My name is Kevin. I'm the pastor of student ministries here at Grace Point. It is great to be here with you this morning. It's a, a big privilege to be able to uh, walk through God's word with you this morning. Want to lead off with a question. What is in your backpack? What's in your backpack? What are the things that you're carrying around in your backpack from your life experiences? Some of them good, some of them great memories, some of them bad, some of them heavy, some of them weighing you down. What's in your backpack? This morning I'm talking about those souvenirs and those tokens that you've stowed away for later. Those memories of past hurts, those documents of the past pains that have been caused to you. Those, those case files that one day you'll be able to pull out of your backpack and present, make your case for those that have hurt you. Maybe it's what they did to me. Got to put that in there. Got to make sure we remember that. Got to make sure we have the full story tucked away for later. What about this one here? What they said to me. Can't believe they said that. Stow that one away for later. And then there's this bad boy. This doesn't even have a name on it, but I know what this one is. I'm not going to tell you. You're going to have to guess. This file is huge. I've been carrying this one for a long time. But I got to keep that just in case, just in case. That perfect moment where I can take out that case file, make my, make my case, prove with all the evidences, all the proofs that I've been wronged and that someone has to pay. I mean, can you believe what they said? How could they see it that way? We dream one day we'll be able to make our case and it'll be airtight because we have all the proofs, we have all the evidence. We have a deep desire for right. We want things to be right, for balance, things to be just and fair. When someone does something wrong, there should be a penalty. We want peace, but we don't see how we could possibly get there as we review the stuff in our packs, as we go through those files that we've collected over the years. The pain and the hurt we're carrying seems too big to simply let go. Too much, too heavy to forgive. Too much to forget. Now, the title of this message this morning is Forget This, Finding Freedom Through Forgiveness. And we could all tell our stories we could all tell our stories of abandonment, abuse, prejudice, alienation, betrayal. And while we don't always have a say in the hurtful experiences that we have and the hurtful people that come our direction and impact our lives, we do have a choice in how we respond. We do have a choice in how we see those situations and we see those people. And our perspective makes all the difference. Today, we're going to walk through a story of a man who had some really tough stuff thrown at him, 
Some of it he brought on himself. It was no fault of anybody else's, but some of it was totally unfair, totally, uh, totally out of bounds. And at other times, it seems like in this story that God has just got something out for this guy. It's a story that reflects life and points to a kind of forgiveness that seems impossible considering the circumstances. This man's process was not easy, and we'll see that it was far from perfect, but he was always making progress. He was always headed somewhere, moving toward a preferred future of healing, of freedom, and peace. He moves through difficult stuff, resolved not to let his past define his future. That's really important. And I hope that we'll see through his story that forgiveness focuses on future freedom. In the story of Joseph found in Genesis chapter 37 to 50, I believe we'll see an unfolding process of forgiveness with three steps that will help us reframe the past and move towards a preferred future. The steps of collecting the dots, connecting the dots, and correcting the dots. That language isn't original with, for, uh, with me. That is coming directly from uh, a book written by Lisa Turkhurst called Forgiving What You Can't Forget. And she sets out a framework in her book that I think is going to be really helpful for us this morning as we process what it, what it looks like to forgive. And it fits really well with the storyline of Joseph and his narrative. And uh, I believe her framework... Um, helps us to see beyond just self-preservation, helps us to see beyond retributive justice or payback as the only answer, and helps move us towards a deep relational thriving with God, others, and ourselves that brings genuine peace, that brings the genuine peace that we all deeply desire and need. We don't have time for all the details of the Joseph story, but if you're interested, read Genesis chapter 37 and 50 for yourself this week. There's so much there. And if you want to go beyond that, I would highly recommend the Bema podcast. Um, I have really benefited from their scholarly approach. Uh, Marty Solomon, Brett Billings, those two host that show, and they do a fantastic job of putting the ancient texts in their proper context. So if you want, make a note of that and look that up later this week. But for our purposes, we'll go 30,000 feet today, and we're just kind of fly by, fly over. Um, the, uh, and on the way, we'll be collecting, connecting, and correcting the dots. And to begin with, we're going to start collecting the dots. Okay, and as we go through this story Think about some of the things that you've collected over the years. Think about how maybe some of Joseph's story might parallel with yours. Um, and uh, try and try and picture those. Try and have those in the front of your brain. Um, for Joseph, in his early years, I think it would be safe to say that he lacks wisdom. Uh, not all wisdom, but just kind of relational wisdom, I would say. Um, he's the favorite son, which leads to some problems because he's not the oldest son. Uh, he is, it's customary for dad to give his sons coats, 
just so you know, in this, in this culture. Just like it would be uh, normal and natural for us as parents to give our kids to clothing, to clothe our kids. But what Jacob, Joseph's dad, does is he gives Joseph a second coat. And that's where the problem comes in. He gives Joseph a double portion. And that double portion was supposed to be reserved for the oldest son. That would have been for Reuben. But Joseph gets it. What's more, he dreams about his dad and his brothers bowing down to him one day and serving him. But he doesn't quite have the wherewithal to keep that to himself. He goes and kind of braggadociously shares that with them and kind of brags about, hey, one day I'm going to be over you. You're going to bow down to me and serve me. And as you, and as you can imagine, Joseph's brothers aren't too keen on their little brother. They don't just disregard him. They hate him like dark side of the force hatred. And it's deep. And it's deep enough that Joseph's brothers plot to kill him in cold blood. Now, when it comes to it, they eventually decide not to kill him. They throw him in a cistern, then they sell him as a slave, and then make up a lie to tell their dad about how Joseph met his demise at the mercy of a ferocious animal. Look at what they say when he's approaching them right before they do all this. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Joseph's brothers were not being the type of family they should have been. They should have acted like brothers. They should have acted like family, like good brothers. But instead, Joseph got a death plot, a cistern, and slavery all at the hands of his own flesh and blood. Are you seeing the dots collecting? Are you seeing the different pieces of his story? Can you just picture his backpack filling up? Fast forward, and Joseph finds himself in the service of Potiphar, a powerful Egyptian official. Now, Joseph's doing well. His work is successful. It's fruitful. People like him. And then his wardrobe gets him in trouble again. This time, he's falsely accused of making advances on Potiphar's wife. And the key evidence against him in this case is his cloak yet again. Joseph finds himself in a world of trouble and in another pit a prison, to be more precise, with no hope of ever getting out. Look at this. Look at what Potiphar's wife says. She called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. You can almost picture her holding up his cloak as the key evidence. And here's where I say, what in the world is God up to? What is, in the world is God doing? Here's where, if I were Joseph, I'd start a little collection of evidence. I'd start compiling the case files, tuck them away in my backpack. And say, how could he let this happen? 
From Joseph's perspective, his heavenly dad has abandoned him and his earthly dad. See, he doesn't have the perspective on the story that we do. For all he knows, he was lost and his dad never came to find him. And now God's abandoned him too. This pack is getting really heavy. Now that we've collected some of the dots, it's time to connect the dots. When it comes to forgiveness, this step is significant because it moves us towards seeing the dots differently. We're going to need some pretty powerful, strong uh, connecting points um, to get to correction. Sometimes that, uh, that means we're going to need something. We're going to need something to connect the dots from collecting to correcting that holds up. That's strong enough to hold up under the weight of our hurts, our deepest pains. And we find that connection point in one simple but significant phrase embedded in the text. And this happens twice. The Lord was with Joseph. Genesis 39, verses 2 and 23. The Lord was with Joseph. Now, I can't tell you why God was with Joseph. He, he hasn't really done anything phenomenal, phenomenal at this point in his life. He hasn't really demonstrated a sensitivity to the, the people around him or the dreams that he's been given by God. I don't know why God is with Joseph, but he is, and Joseph's story takes a turn. The order gets reversed. Listen to this. The order gets reversed from gifts, dreams, cloak off into the pit to out of the pit, cloak on, dreams, and then gifts. Now, that's a lot been condensed right there, and I would highly recommend going back into this text, looking for yourself. But while Joseph is in the second pit, it's a literal dungeon. God continued to be with him, and Joseph gets called to interpret a really foreboding dream. It's a dream of pharaohs that forecasts a severe famine. And Joseph doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't accept the dream as fatal and resign. Instead, he tells it how it is, and then, get this, he does something about it. He doesn't just interpret the dream. He comes up with a plan. And he casts a vision for what could be. And the plan seems good to Pharaoh. And it is good. And Egypt thrives. Can you see the dots being connected now? There's a bigger narrative taking place, unfolding gradually, and God is authoring it. It's a redemptive theme being woven in. God is with Joseph, forgiving him, giving him more than he deserves, and he's reversing the curse. You see it in, even in the structure of the story. The Lord was with God. Now, can you make an interpretive jump with me? A little bit of a leap. In your deepest hurt, in your darkest hour, in your deepest pain, God was with you. God is with you. That's what's being communicated in this story. This gave Joseph the ability to hope and continue to dream. 
This allowed something other than his hurt to define him. The dots collected and connected by the Lord's never-ending presence with Joseph allowed him to move forward, to not get weighed down by all the stuff that he'd been through. Now, finally, that now that we've collected and connected, we've got to correct the dots. And this is the move from seeing to responding. This is the move from seeing to responding, correcting the dots. This is moment of truth time for Joseph. Would he move more closely identify with the household of God and the covenant God made with Abraham or the household of Pharaoh? See, his context is Egypt right now. And things are going well. Now, Pharaoh's house would eventually fall as a result of bitterness, anger, and vengeance. That's the way of Pharaoh. Hey, if you mess with my kingdom, you're going to get vengeance. But that's not the way of peace. That's not what it feels like in God's household. God's house, established on the promise of Abraham, would ultimately rise as a people of forgiveness, compassion, generosity, and love. Not clenched fists, ready to fight, but open hands, ready to give. There is an awareness of justice, that deep desire to put things back together as they should be. I'm not setting that aside. But that's coupled with the blessing and the balancing of forgiveness. I think sometimes we forget the part that forgiveness plays. Forgiveness is the greatest expression of trust that there is. Do we trust God? Do we trust the story that he's authoring? Do we trust him enough to lay down our right to get even? Toward the end of the Joseph story, we see his brothers bowing down at his feet, just like he predicted in his dream. They're desperate for food only he can supply. Their lives demand, depend on what Joseph chooses to do next. Will he trust justice to God and extend forgiveness when he has every right to slay his offenders where they stand? Joseph cries out. He weeps loud enough that the Egyptians who had previously been dismissed from the room still hear him wailing. Joseph could have brought justice, but suddenly his heart is softened, transformed, the dots corrected. Imagine if Joseph had chosen differently as he stood over his helpless and indebted brothers. Imagine how satisfying it would have been for him to enact the full fury of his judgment. He had power, he had authority, he had every right. But something else moved in him, compassion, mercy, love. It flowed from him in healing tears that he couldn't contain. He was vulnerable. He was humble. He chose forgiveness. He demonstrates in that moment a principle Lisa Turkhurst puts in this way. We can't change what we have experienced but we can choose how 
we experience, how the experience changes us. And in the final portion of the story, after his father Jacob has passed away, Joseph's brothers are afraid of maybe a little bit of a hidden grudge that Joseph might be holding on to. They're worried that now that their dad's gone, he's going to get his vengeance. But Joseph corrects the dots decisively with one incredible statement to his brothers. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Now, if that doesn't reframe everything, I don't know what does. Joseph breaks the cycle of generational bitterness and vengeance and hatred with authentic forgiveness. His choice to forgive sets up the entire biblical narrative of rescue and redemption that would ultimately culminate and find its perfect expression in the person of Jesus Christ, who would one day make a choice, the one who held all the power, all the authority, who could call down a host of angel armies to slay his enemies where they stood, yet Jesus chose to set aside his rights. He chose humility to the point of humiliation. He chose to be exposed on the cross, hanging from a tree, entering into the deeps of what can only be described as a literal hell. Separation from God. Separation from the Father for the first time ever. Willingly going to his death, bearing the full weight of our sin so we wouldn't have to. So our burden could be light. So justice could be served and forgiveness extended. There, in that single moment, God's forgiveness and God's perfect justice, so we could know peace. So, what's in your backpack? What's keeping you from moving forward? What's keeping you stuck? What's weighing you down? What are you unable to forget that causes you to want to scream, forget this? Forget this process of forgiveness. Forget this work of forgiveness. Justice is just easier. When justice is just easier in the moment, though, choosing forgiveness corrects the dots. Refusing to forgive eventually hurts us and those around us. When we're full of hurt, it only takes a little bit of nudge, a little bit of a nudge, a little bit of a bump for a little bit of that bitterness to spill out, for a little bit of the, that acid that corrodes and erodes relationships to splash out over the edge and impact everybody that's close. Now, we might not get it right all the time, and Joseph certainly didn't. But just like when he did, let's see ourselves positioned in a story that is far greater than our own and beyond this world. With this perspective and this response, there is freedom. There is a way forward. Trust and hope that is independent of our current situation, our current culture, 
are our current kingdoms. When we trust in God, we no longer have to look at ourselves or the world around us to meet our deepest need for peace and justice. As God's children, we are heirs of Christ, not of this world. Because of this, we can offer forgiveness that opens us up to be a conduit for the compassion and peace and grace of Jesus to flow to us and through us. Even to those who have hurt us deeply. The gospel of grace is the ultimate corrective. We have to lean into this truth even when the emotions are so strong that we feel like we'll never be able to move. Forgiveness heads towards wholeness. What I'm unable to forget, I lean into Jesus and his grace to help me forgive. Lisa Turkers puts it this way, and whatever my feelings don't yet allow for, the blood of Jesus will surely cover. Consider what's in your backpack. What have you been waiting to just reveal one day? Your proofs, your case files. What might be in there that might just need to be covered by the blood of Jesus and left at the cross? Now, there's a big, big caveat here. There's no excuse for abuse. If you are abusing someone else, shame on you. If someone is hurting you, you need to get clear of that person. And if you're hurting yourself, you need to seek help because your life is too important. You mean too much to God. Forgiveness doesn't always mean restored relationship. Sometimes it means separation and walking away. But Romans 12:18 says as far as it depends on you, live at peace. Maybe we all need to take a moment, hit pause, open up our packs and look inside and decide what might need to just get set at the foot of the cross? What might need to be covered by the blood of Jesus? Maybe I won't ever be able to forget that. But maybe, just maybe, I can forgive it. Maybe I don't have to have all of these proofs and evidences weighing me down but I can lay him out in front of me and let the blood of Jesus cover those hurts and those pains. And suddenly my pack gets a lot lighter. It's a lot easier to move around. It's a lot easier to move forward. Guys, when the past isn't changeable, the feelings are overwhelming and forgiveness looks impossible, it's easy to assume that there's nothing we can do about the future. But the past can either define us and leave us stuck, or 
it can shape us and free us to a dynamic and flourishing future. Imagine if the gospel was the lens that we looked through all of our lives with. Imagine if the gospel was how we viewed our pain. I think stories would be changed. I think futures would be shaped. I think more people would catch a glimpse of a better life and see a redemptive narrative of compassion and forgiveness and peace and joy and love that ends in victory. So when all that you want to do is throw up your hands and say, forget this. Forget this work of forgiveness. I'm done with the process of collecting, connecting, and correcting. Don't forget what Jesus has done for you and what he continues to do for you. When you want to take matters into your own hands and bring the justice that you have every right to bring, remember that Jesus didn't come to bring judgment, but to bear it. His death was the turning point of the narrative. This grand redemptive story that's still being written. Remember that what's beyond us is not beyond Jesus. The cross has paved the way to victory, peace, resurrected, new life. Can we accept what that means for what's next? Because forgiveness focuses on future freedom. Forgiveness relies on the blood of Jesus to forgive what we could never, ever forget. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to gather here and to walk through the story of Joseph that you've given us as a gift that we could take the journey with him through collecting the dots, connecting the dots and correcting the dots. God, I pray that you would have worked in our hearts and minds and that you continue to help us see the value of forgiveness. To not set aside justice, but to leave that to you, to let the blood of Jesus cover those deep pains and deep hurts that we can never forget that we can never just dismiss. But Lord, help us to see the nuances of forgiveness, the, the, how dynamic forgiveness is, and that it leads to a thriving in our relationships with you, with others, and even with ourselves. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. God, work in your power. Continue to work in your power. Help us to be aware of your presence, even in our valleys, even in our dark valleys, even when the world seems against us. Help us to see that we can lay our burdens down at the foot of the cross. And that when we do, our pack gets a lot lighter. God, thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for your blood. 
that leads to our freedom. In Jesus' name, amen.